This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge and this is the third and final episode in our series on housing. The way we talk about the housing market tends to rely on a set of very familiar ideas about value and property rights and market economics. And those ideas are so familiar that it can sometimes seem like there's no other way to think about housing. But today, producer Dallas Rogers is looking at housing through the lens of Aboriginal property development and land rights. In a moment, we're going to be hearing from Nama Blattman, who's a postdoctoral research fellow and lecturer in urban geography at the University of Sydney. But first, Graham Davis King sits on the board of directors of the Dearubbin Aboriginal Land Council in Western Sydney. Dearubbin Aboriginal Land Council holds 200 square kilometres of land in Western Sydney, and in 2015, the Land Council won a major land claim ruling to become the owners of one of Australia's oldest serving prisons, Parramatta Jail. And Dallas Rogers is talking with Graham Davis King at the Parramatta Jail site. Yeah, so my name's Graham Davis King. Uh, where I come from originally, I'm from the Radri and Ngampai people, West, from Western New South Wales, and I grew up at Redfern. And Redfern is one of the sites where there's a strong Aboriginal community, over 38,000 Aboriginal people lived there in 1972. And now they've all moved out here, like many people, and all over New South Wales. And we're probably looking at 40,000 Aboriginal people in Western Sydney that we represent here. So Aboriginal Land Councils were incorporated in 1983 under the New South Wales Land Rights Act of 1983 and under that Act, um, Aboriginal Land Council or Aboriginal Communities for local Aboriginal Land Councils can claim unused Crown land in New South Wales. So that's provisions under the Land Rights Act and that's the process that we operate under. Could you tell me what it's like uh, working with Nama and how that came about? Yeah, so the Parramatta Jail, which is on Durban Land Council area, had a landmark um, land claim on this 10 hectares at the Parramatta Jail. So the, the jail site is, itself is 4.5 hectares in size. And outside here where we're sitting, this is five hectares outside. So we're a major player in the Westmead uh, precinct and the Westmead Alliance and all that and North Parramatta and um, connecting up with 61 hectares of parklands and that here, Parramatta Park and Cumberland Hospital. So it's quite a significant portion and we're a significant stakeholder here. And um, this is what Nama's engaged with us about well, Nama, it was great talking to Graham about the Land Council and the Parramatta Jail site and your involvement out there. And you didn't just turn up at the jail and say, I want to do a study on this site, did you? No, I did not. So I guess the first thing I would say is um, this project came through an invitation, uh, which is really important. And as far as I'm concerned, really the only way <laughs> to work collaboratively with Indigenous partners is by invitation. And the Land Council had invited me to the prison and they had wanted to share the story with me. And everything that I guess followed afterwards was purely uh, collaborative. So, you know, the details of the project and how we ask the questions and what kind of terminology to use and which projects to, to highlight and all of the sort of the 
even the nitty gritty of creating an agreement, everything was discussed time and time again. But I think the interesting thing from my perspective is that there is never an ending point to this process, that every time I enter, quote unquote, the field, as anthropologists like to call it, there is a renegotiation of my entrance and my presence in that space. There is never a, a moment where I feel like um, the land council is just comfortable with me being there. There is, and, and that's not to say they don't want me there. It is to say that there is always an understanding that as a white academic and researcher, that I am foreigner to that space, that I am... Um, that I'm going to be extractive unless this is done in their terms, in the way that the land council is comfortable with, which I am delighted that they can do with me because it keeps me exactly where I think I should be in this project, recognizing where I come from, my own positionality, the the privilege and the power that I bring with me, and the fact that this is ultimately an Aboriginal story spoken about on stolen Aboriginal land, that I am a guest not just in this land, but I'm also a guest in that research. And that being there is by invitation and by sort of an ongoing iteration of that invitation um, that I think we should all take cues from because you're not just invited to country once, you have to be reinvited all the time. And you mentioned there that you're not Aboriginal. So how did you come to this question? I'm Israeli. I grew up in Jerusalem in the 80s. I didn't quite know that I was living in a settlement at the time, but over the years um, realized that the home I grew up in um, was built on land that Israel occupied from Palestinians in 1967. So I was very much doing and living um, the colonial project of Palestine. I started studying more about the history of Palestine and I guess came to some reckoning with my own complicity in this project that pushed me into a PhD. Um, that project specifically looked at how indigenous populations, starting with Palestinians, then later adding this sort of Australian component, if you will, looked at the way that indigenous populations, I guess, migrate or reclaim land in cities and the kind of relationships that indigenous communities have to land, stolen land in cities. Um, I did a portion of my research in, in Palestine, Israel, and then 10 years ago moved to North Queensland to undertake research there um, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities on unceded land of the Windle, the Bindle and the Wulguru Kabar peoples um, in Townsville, on what, what is today Townsville. And I moved to Sydney three and a half years ago, not knowing that I will take uh, undertake any kind of research really in Sydney. At the time, I thought I will keep working in Queensland because that's where my relationships were more established and I felt more ethical to work there. And that's when, by coincidence, I met the representatives of the Land Council. We started having kind of chats about Aboriginal land and um, the kind of questions that I was driven by around um, dispossession and repossession of land in cities and the relationships between land and property in cities. They seemed quite interested in my questions and I was interested in how they understand their own work. And that's where the collaboration 
started to take shape. Um, that drove us to apply for funding together for a collaborative project to the Urban Studies Foundation in the UK, which thankfully we received. And that allowed me the time and the space and the kind of three-year project span to to work with them around these questions of, I guess, yeah, what is land development or what does the Aboriginal land estate do to urban development and planning processes? And I guess more broadly, what are the opportunities or possibilities of decolonizing commodified land and colonized land, of course, and stolen land within the sort of capitalist real estate market? You, you've mentioned there one of the key and most interesting anomalies in this project is the idea of private property itself, which for a long time has been actually the key mechanism of dispossession, or at least one of the key mechanisms of dispossession. It's the way that Aboriginal people were dispossessed of their land using that technology, if you like. But what's interesting about this case, I think, is the way that the land councils are actually using this former tool of dispossession as a way of forwarding their own material and mm -hmm. politics. Yep. Um, yeah, that very much captures the, I guess, the spin of the project. And, and, and you know, I, I'd say that it's a question for us. We're not asserting that, that that to be the case just yet. I think we're exploring in some ways the possibilities of sort of spinning property in that way um, and what you gain and what you lose by working with within this, this structure, if you will. But the, I guess the, the history of it is, or the, the beginning of this equation as you pose it, is really important to unpack as well because fundamentally uh, much of the work that I draw on and a lot of critical urban scholars drawn in this sort of space of colonial studies or settler colonial studies has come, I guess, to presuppose almost property as evil in a way, as a colonial um, structure in and of itself. There's a growing literature in this space that basically has helped us see that we shouldn't kind of assume a, a normative or a positive normativity, I guess, to property you know, as, as a kind of something that anybody can own, as a, a structure of opportunity, if you will. You know, you sort of grow up in a liberal context and you sort of assume that if you work hard and, and you do everything that's expected of you, you'll one day buy your little house with your picket fence. And, and in some ways, what critical scholars have been proposing and, and kind of pushing us all to see is that we have been taking for granted this, this sort of structure of property and that it's not actually a liberal structure. It is a colonial racist and racialized structure um, that offers very specific opportunities to very specific people of very specific backgrounds and colors. And, you know, I'm thinking here um, specifically about works like uh, Brenna Bandar's work that speaks to how private property law um, has been activated in the colonies from really day dot and has been kind of imported from, from Europe into the colonies as a dispossessory tool, as a tool for both creating um, social cultural distinctions between people who can own or are capable of owning property and capable of having land in the sort of property, private property structure, and those who cannot. It was then kind of re reformed within the contemporary colonial structures as we know it in cities and, and elsewhere to maintain those initial 
differentiations, again, social, cultural, but then obviously socioeconomic and other, you know, before Brenna Bandar, um, Nick Blomley's work and, and others and Sarah Keenan's work, you know, all these people that are basically helping us or have helped us to, to see or to expose the workings of private property as something that generates a sort of both builds on, but also perpetuates a possessive individual logic, right? Whereby we're all singular. Um, we all have a particular relationship to land through ownership, exclusively through ownership. In the Australian context, and particularly in the kind of settler colonial framing, the work of Alan Morton Robinson has been instrumental to help us see the different ways that um, Europeans relate or settlers relate to to land exclusively, I guess, through the sort of possessory logic of owning land exclusively, right? And the sort of, one of the, I guess, most quoted, most cited um, statements that she makes in the book is precisely that settlers um, belong in Australia only through this sort of owning and possessing land, as opposed to Aboriginal people who have a relationship of custodianship and care for land. And, you know, that that kind of a belonging is is deeply rooted in a pre-colonial and probably post-colonial spirit. That's an aspiration, I guess, a post-colonial framing. And so looking at or taking all of this literature into account, I think most critical scholars would say that private property has been, I guess, a debilitating structure for Aboriginal prosperity, futurities, you know, sort of reclamation, reassertion of life in the land, that basically it is not just that it's a structure that's been disabling it, but probably the quintessential way that colonization has stifled Aboriginal life and futures and existence, that it's been a way of severing the connection of Aboriginal people to land. Uh, people like Glenn Coulthard and others that have been really making those points quite strongly and obviously persuasively. And I, I agree with them. And, and, you know, together with Libby Porto, we've, we wrote about this. So all of this is true. <laughs> and, and I'm not profoundly contesting that. But having said all that, what I've been learning through this work I'm doing with the Land Council is that land ownership as property, uh, which is what the Land Rights Act enables, also is a genuine opportunity to unsettle um, what property has otherwise been doing to the land and to this, as I said, to the discontinuity of Aboriginality as such and, and Aboriginal life and connections to land. And so I'm quite, I think I was quite surprised in some ways with the fact that that private property can be an unsettling factor in a settler colonial urban context. And that's what we're trying to tease out in this project, because partly what we're, what I'm seeing and what the Land Council is articulating through this project is that owning land as private property, again, held by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people, that's an important caveat, but that owning land is also a way of ensuring continuity of life as Aboriginal people 
and as self-determining sovereign people. And that's quite a significant project, I would say, given the the profound genocidal project of, of colonization that is ongoing. Um, and so I think that's where we can potentially ask questions about what private property is, what it does, um, what are the possibilities of unsettling it within the existing structure. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone here on RN. This week, producer Dallas Rogers is talking with Graham Davis-King and Nama Blattman about Aboriginal land rights and property development. This is the final episode in a three-part series on housing, and you can catch the previous episodes at the Philosopher's Zone website or via the ABC Listen app. So, so any if the government or anyone wants to work on serious stuff and address issues seriously, then it's good to talk to the Land Council because we could probably can, if we work together, um, solve some of these really serious issues. And I mean Warragamba Dam and um, the airport or um, you know, biodiversity in Western Sydney, carbon offset, you know, the heating effects in Western Sydney, housing, nature reserves, a whole lot. So, you know, that, that's the future for me for Western Sydney. And um, eventually, I think Western Sydney will catch up. And But that's where we've got to be moving forward and leading that discussion. And, um, of course, our main aim, number one priority, is to claim more land out here. And that will enable all our community in Western Sydney, Aboriginal people, uh, to be able to progress um, into the fields that we're developing. But it'll also benefit to the best degree, like the wider society in Western Sydney also. There's huge benefits there for everyone, yeah. So that's the, to me, that's the community benefit there. Well, Aboriginal land councils like our one, it's building up its, um, its community assets. So we own 200 square kilometres of land. So we're, we've got plans to develop on that 200 square kilometres of land. And um, some areas will be remain as wilderness, and that, and those areas are going to be important as biodiversity stewardship areas. And um, then we've got other places that we're building housing. I think one of the questions was around housing, so we will be building housing for our community, and hopefully supplying that that need. And, um, and we have builders that we're got agreements with to build the housing and we've we've got the land to do that in um, in significant areas where our community is moving to so so that's our, our big business there. What's interesting about that project is really the most classical like example of how the land council operates as a land developer right you take land you build houses on it you sell the houses Right, that's classic, classic kind of property development as far as I understand it. Um, I am not a property developer. But um, I think we you know when you speak to the land council about how is this, why is this a, a good thing for Aboriginal people? How is this even, yeah, how is this even an Aboriginal project? 
I guess, is I think one of the questions I actually asked. And the answer was, well, sometimes you have to think about the ways that the colony has been undermining the existence of Aboriginal futures to sort of, and I'm putting some of my own spin on it, but that's basically what they said, is think about how futures have been withheld for Aboriginal people and then put this project within that context and now you get to see that actually we are asserting that futures are no longer going to be withheld. And not only that we will survive, quote unquote, but we will determine how we survive. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing to say because the project is fundamentally about a taking some of the power to determine where people live and how they live and the codependency that Aboriginal people have had on housing policies and their various evolutions over the years, government housing policies. And so taking some of that codependency away and bringing back power to Aboriginal people who are developing their own land in their own terms and having obviously an outcome of actual houses, so housing security and continuity as an actual material outcome. But also, I think what we see here is this idea that, that you can actually muddle a little bit the sort of futurities that we spoke about before, that there isn't actually a linearity of time here, that there isn't this, you know, this is, this is the post-colonial outcome that planners spoke about, because that's not how they see it. This is not the be-all and all of Aboriginal life as what is the future of Aboriginal. This is an instrument. This is a, a way. This is a, a little thing that you can do, a stepping stone to make sure that, that there is survival, that there is continuity, that there is the, the, the life force that I spoke about before. And that is, that it's no longer dependent on colonial governments, that they will not, not ensure our futures, but rather we will do it in the way that we, we Aboriginal people feel and see as the need to do it. And there's a lot of, you know, community and kin and connections that are very much endemic to this, to this futurity and how it's understood and what this vision for the future will look like. And again, it's not a future of end product the way we as Westerners think about it. You know, if I, if I buy or build a house, then this is it. This is the inheritance I need to give to my kids and they will survive. And this is, this is the manifestation of success. This is just, it's not at all how it's understood in the development project. This is just another way of ensuring that what happened to us 200 years ago cannot happen again, that we do actually have power, self-determining power, to ensure that that survival is, I guess, that, that we survive, that there is survival. So I think here again, you know, it takes us back to this question of how comfortable we are <laughs> with the idea that that it is an actual political, potentially quite radical um, assertion of life in a sort of anti-colonial way. What I like about that is, like, I like that you used anti-colonial mm. because I think it's a good way of summing up what's happening here because while the people that drafted the legislation might 
have thought they could move towards a post-colonial future. They were always tied up in the colonial. As you've said, the, the legislation was always grounded in ways that actually made it not disrupt white property, mm -hmm. basically. It was explicitly designed that way. But I like anti-colonial because it says to me that despite the way you design this legislation, we will use it to our own devices. We we are anti the colonial system, and this is a mechanism. We won't use it in the way you designed it. We will think about it in our own way, and we will do what we want with it to pursue our own anti-colonial agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it it is interesting to think about how, in some ways, that bit of legislation, you know, it's not, I guess divorced from the broader policy of assimilation that Australia has held, uh, particularly, you know, 1670s, definitely early 80s, you know, what were Aboriginal people expected to do, quote unquote, they were, this was an instrument of, I guess, bringing Aboriginal people, quote unquote, into this economic structure of land development. And it was despite the intentions of also, you know, recognizing wrongdoings, blah, blah, blah. It was actually a way of making them into this homo economicus, right? This has been a project of Australia for <laughs> many, many years. And I think it is first important that we recognize that that's the structure of the law. That's the structures within which local Aboriginal land councils were created. These councils are full of staunch Aboriginal leaders, female and male. These people truly have visions for their own life, and they are also working within this bit of legislation. So there is a Mary here that they, you know, that historically was created. Let's take it seriously. But also that, yep, yeah, you can give a, need, a nod and a wink to the, to the capitalist structure. You can be homo economicus, quote unquote, but also do it your way. Do it in a way that, that asserts that Aboriginal life force that the colony has been working so hard to eliminate. And that is, you know, and, and maybe I'm, I'm at the risk of romanticizing it because it's, again, not without conflict and not without complexities. I think that is, at, in some ways, at least something to give credit to, right? Um, particularly if we are serious critical scholars who criticize the way that the settler colony continues to reinvent itself. Well, there you go. I mean, I think Aboriginality is a part of this process. Like there's a genuine process here of reckoning with and figuring out how to live and outlive this structure. And at least that's what the people I work with express. This is about outliving the colony. This is about even when they decide to cancel the Land Rights Act, which almost everybody I spoke to in the Land Council is convinced that that will happen at some point, that they will, New South Wales government will realize this was a stupid mistake all along and they will just do something else. Even when the government decides to undo this, we are going to outlive it because we are doing what we need to do to establish a continuity of life. Yeah, that to me is, is what drives this collaboration more than anything else is really giving this credit where it's due. 
Nama Blattman. She's a postdoctoral research fellow and lecturer in urban geography at the University of Sydney. And you also heard Graham Davis-King, who sits on the board of directors of the Dearubbin Aboriginal Land Council in Western Sydney. And they were speaking with producer Dallas Rogers. And that wraps up our three-part series on housing. If you missed the first two episodes or any of our past episodes, they're all available on the Philosopher's Zone website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks so much for your company. Bye for now.